Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. So uh, welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a long, long time friend, the founder of what I think is the best catering company in the world, Relish. Our guest, Claudine Revere. Welcome, Claudine. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I want to go back, Claudine, to July of 1992. <laughs> you, had, okay. you, you had just graduated from Wagner. Yes. And you take a job with the Tam Restaurant Group. Yes. Take us back to Tam, and clearly you had a hankering to be in the culinary arts. Well, you know, it didn't start out that way, but um, when I was in college in Wagner, I had a job working with my girlfriends in this, so Wagner's on Staten Island, and we worked in this restaurant complex that was attached to a bowling alley and a movie theater. So it was called Millard Fillmore's, and my girlfriends and I worked there. On, I only worked two days a week, Tuesdays and Saturdays, and it was really just like going to work and having fun with your friends. And um, we had a very kooky customer who would come in on on Saturday night and stay until the very, very end. And he was kind of like that character on As Good As It Gets that Jack Nicholson plays that, you know, once that, you know, recleans the silverware, doesn't order anything on the menu. When he does order, it's a special order. He's a bit grouchy, but uh, so we had that kind of client. And I always had the latest shift on a Saturday and he would stay till the end and nobody wanted him in his section, in their section. So I would always say, oh, just put him in my section. It's fine. I'm here until the end. And I mean, he was odd, but harmless, you know, and, and I kind of always felt a little bad for him because he never had anyone dining with him. He was always there on his own and people would walk by and say hello and wave, but he didn't really seem to have a lot of friendships going on. So it was fine. And we used to chat and he would every week come in with stories of how my friends and I should leave this job and, you know, do something else, something, you know, sometimes something crazy, like, I don't know, hot oil wrestling or something off the wall. So we would just laugh it off. But he started to come and talk to me about a friend of his that had a restaurant company. Um, they're doing a 50s festival. Maybe, you know, they need help. Why don't you go call them? And I thought, oh, this, he couldn't possibly have a normal friend. I mean, this seems like another crazy scheme. So uh, after about two or three weeks of him asking me if I called his friend, I said, oh, finally, I'm going to call. And so I did. And his friend was actually Frank and Jean Cortella, who were very legitimate husband and wife restaurant and catering operators who were hosting a 50s festival on Staten Island with the you know nostalgia and old cars and the Shangri-Las and the Shalanas from from that time and I worked all summer helping them promote this festival with marketing and advertising and so on and so forth and I and he was really the connection to them I would never have known them or met them had he not kept insisting that that I meet his friends. And so I really have him to thank for, for my introduction into the restaurant business because I worked with them that summer. The festival happened. It got rained out all weekend. It was a bit of a disaster. I felt terrible. I went back to school and they kept asking me to come back and work on marketing and advertising projects related to their different restaurant concepts and catering concepts. And I kept saying yes all along. And I did that for the last year and a half of school. And then it became time to graduate. And they asked me, you know, what are you thinking of doing? And I said, well, I'm not sure. I've, my degree is in economics. So I might take on a role. I might try to work on Wall Street. I might try to go to graduate school. And they said, well, we think you'd be really great in this business. I said, what do you mean? They said, in the restaurant business and catering and, and quick serve, you know. And I said, out front with, with clients? And they said, yes. <laughs> I just never, I had not thought of it. And they said, listen, you know, we will we'll train you. We'll teach you everything you need to know. You'll work all across all the different diversities of the business. And if you don't like it, you know, you can always quit. But we really think that you would be great at this and you would 
just be a great fit. So I thought, well, I mean, it wasn't like I had offers coming down the door and I, I never really thought of it, but I did enjoy my time in the restaurants and all of the work that I had been doing for them. So I said, okay. And that was the beginning, you know, that was it. I worked with them for eight years and I, I learned so much. So I want to go back because an American place is a legendary restaurant and really in many ways presaged a lot of developments that followed it in the industry. But let's go back to your time when you were in Staten Island, when you were working, you know, as a college student, you know, earn extra money working in restaurants and bars. Uh, that must have been so important in shaping who you are as a business person, getting a chance to just be out there on the front lines and to talk and interact with customers. Absolutely. And, you know, I, our, our client base in that particular restaurant, I mean, we were, a, a, we were, it almost looked like a chain restaurant because it, it had a very hooligan, what I would consider like hooligans vibe inside with a lot of brass and things all over the walls and dark green and had that kind of feel to it. But it was super popular and it was attached to this giant bowling alley that was attached to a, a, a movie theater. So it was it was the hangout. I mean, it was a popular place and everybody came in. Families, single people, people from the island, people coming in from New Jersey. And and you really had to you, you really had to know how to communicate with people because obviously being in the service industry, the more friendly you are, the more knowledgeable you are, the more um, just upbeat you are, the better you do in tips. You know, it's kind of it's it's that simple. So you learn you either figure it out pretty quickly or or you don't. I interestingly enough, I hadn't really thought that much about it. I, my friends worked there. They enjoyed working there. So I got a job there. But as I started to work there, one of the managers that we had, we were in a pre-shift meeting and um, she said, you, we had a big party coming in and she said, oh, Claudine, you know what? I'm going to give you this big party because no matter how crazy things get, you always stay so calm. And I hadn't even been aware of that. Like to, in, in, that I was say more calm under pressure than somebody else or that I didn't freak out or I wasn't messing up under pressure. It, it hadn't even occurred to me that, that that was within my personality. So that actually was very, even though it was the smallest comment, it was very insightful because it really helped me tap into something that I didn't even realize I was good at, that I was a person that operated well in stressful situations or in, or with difficult people. Yeah. But I think those skills that you learn or traits that end up being revealed when you're working as a younger person, that shapes you and stays with you forever. Absolutely. And it's something that as a, when I started Relish and the first major contract I had was at Walman Rink in Central Park, which was, was, which was a property that when I was in college, TAM operated. So I was familiar with the property. I was hiring a lot of very young people, sometimes right with, you know, fresh out of working papers at 14, 14 to 17. And they had no life skills as far as talking to people, right? So we found, a, we found ourselves spending a lot of time teaching kids how to communicate with with other people, people their age, people older, people younger, and how to speak to people, how to remain in control of a conversation so that things don't escalate, even if they're not going well. Um, just to, it, it was really helpful, but had she not, had our manager not mentioned, not said that to me, I would, I might be in a totally different industry. You know, I mean, I, I might've traveled a long time not really realizing what I was good at because in our world of events, especially very large events, which Relish ultimately ends up doing, there are a lot of moving parts and pieces and there's a lot that can go right and a lot that can go wrong. And you really, you can do a lot of things, but, but, but freaking out or having, you know, reacting instead of trying to be proactive is not going to help you. You know, it's like, it's just not going to work. And a lot of the, I always laugh at these reality television dramas that were coming out in the early 2000s and the late 90s about restaurants, you know, and you would see these behind the scenes, crazy chefs yelling and things burning. And it's like, I never had any of that. Like that, that just, 
never happened. I mean, if you're in a well, if you're running a good, a, a well-run operation, like you don't have fires in your kitchen and you don't have people throwing things at each other and <laughs> like, it just doesn't happen, but it's really good for television. It's just really bad for your restaurant. Right. 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 Great, great story. Yeah. I look back so fondly on all the jobs that I did, you know, when I was, you know, going all the way back to, you know, I used to sell ice cream on the street in New York City. I had my own chipwich cart when I was 15. I in high school. Yeah, I love chipwich. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I think that really shapes you. So let's go back now to an American place. That was really uh, ahead of its time, I think, is the only way I can say it. And give us reflections on that restaurant, on Larry, and that period of your career. I mean, Larry really was so far ahead of his time. This delightful neighborhood is at 70th Street and Lexington Avenue on New York's Upper East Side. And it's the home of Lawrence Fort Jones Restaurant, an American place. No chef has been more closely identified with the rediscovery of our American culinary roots than Lawrence Fort John. While he has always displayed solid technique with him. He and Jonathan Waxman were very close friends. Jonathan was around the restaurant as much as Larry, actually, <laughs> at the time. But they were such pioneers and, and champions of American cooking. You know, having people start to recognize that, um, that America could compete with Europe in cooking. You know, that we had the talent. We had the, pro the products. We had the ability to grow beautiful produce, um, fantastic meats. We could do things in a, a small way, not just a large way, and we we had the we had the ability to to train Michelin chefs um, in America, even though they all still went to Europe to train. But we had the capability, and that he was the first person to be talking about that. The first person to really be championing green markets and organic anything, along with Alice Waters. And um, I mean, these are all these are the shoulders that the chefs of today are standing on in the whole farm to fork movement. And any one of those chefs would say the same thing that Larry, Jonathan Waxman, Alice Waters, they were they were their heroes. They're like the grandparents of of American farm to fork today. And Larry was very he was a really um, interesting, reserved guy, completely Un underestimated, I think. He's, his nature is to be quite quiet. He's not, he's not boisterous. He doesn't say a lot. He doesn't use a lot of words, but he's very thoughtful in all of the words he chooses. And he was very happy to be the chef. You know, he wasn't interested in being a celebrity. And we passed up lots of opportunities, lots of opportunities of people calling to want to have him on a cooking segment they wanted him to rewrite the American food dictionary, um, you know, to have him be teaching lectures. Like these were all things that these were opportunities that would come up all the time. And he just didn't, he just wasn't a celebrity. He didn't want to be a celebrity. And, um, but, but he was really fantastic human. And over the past 20 years, you look at the evolution of the business of food, where we source food, the, uh, prevalence now of farm to fresh. That was the very beginning of that whole movement. Did you think it would become as big and as dominant as it has? I, I know at the time I didn't, but I definitely knew, I couldn't have imagined it would grow to say where it is today, where it, I knew that there was a movement. It was such a, it was such a small movement. And at the time it was, it, it was really seen as, um, a fringe, you know, and even being like vegan and veganism, it, we take for granted all of the access we have to that food now. It didn't exist back then. You know, if you were a vegan, you didn't have a thousand restaurants to choose from and you didn't go into a supermarket and find an entire aisle, you know, dedicated to it. So, you know, and, and organic growing, even at the time, you know, there were green markets sprouting up here and there, but people didn't even there wasn't even a conversation about the fact that this really is better for you. This isn't some weird little fad that's going to come and go. So Larry was very much ahead of that and a part of that. But at the time you knew something was happening, but it was still very fringe. You could have never, at least I could never imagine that it would have led to where it is now, but that the, 
the, the, the, the cooking network had just come out too. That was the, there was the cooking network and Martha Stewart had her own channel in the beginning, early stages of say dedicated television cable channels to certain things. And when the cooking network first started, I mean, it wasn't the, the chefs that were there now, Bobby Flay was there from the beginning, but it took time to build up that repertoire of chefs and people didn't know who chefs were. I mean, they might've loved the restaurant, but they really didn't know who the chef was of the restaurant. They might know the restaurant was famous, but who was cooking really wasn't front and center. That whole switch of making the chef, the star of the restaurant, and then taking that chef that's now a star of this restaurant that's well-known and making them a star in their own right. That that's just some marketing genius and television genius that happened along the way because chefs weren't stars back then. And after that, still very young, you're in your early thirties, you start relish. Yeah. (laughs) Necessity breeds invention. (laughs) So tell us how it all happened. So I, um, I was actually interviewing to take a job at Bellagio, a hotel in Las Vegas. I felt like, I mean, I was obviously single. I didn't have any real responsibilities. I didn't have anybody to be responsible for. And I had an opportunity to move to Las Vegas and be director of restaurants for Bellagio Hotel, which was really fantastic opportunity. I was excited about it. And, um, I rang Frank Cretella, who was my first boss and always a mentor. And I was super excited to call and say, I've got this amazing opportunity that I'm, you know, that I'm going to be given. And I was expecting a big, you know, congratulations and a high five. And, and he said, I can't believe that I can't believe that you're calling you to tell me you're still working for somebody else. And I was like, I said, this is an amazing opportunity. He's like, who cares? You're still working for somebody else you should be doing something on your own. This is, he's like, I, 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 I don't understand why you would do this. And it really hit me hard. I was like, wow, you know, this is, this is not the response I was expecting um, because it was super competitive to, you know, to get to where I was in that selection process. And I felt like I had really come to the, the end of a long process. And um, that hit me hard for him to be so disappointed and say, you know, that, he's disappointed in me that I would take this opportunity. And I was like, I, I was really shot down by that. And I was going to move because obviously that was my job at the time. And then my dad had a sudden, very serious heart attack. And I realized I, and it wasn't looking good. And I realized I I didn't want to be so far away from my family. If something like that happened, I, you know, I just wanted to be closer. So I let them know that I, was not going to be able to take that role, which, which they were pretty shocked about as well. And then for the first time in my life, I was unemployed. I mean, I have literally have, I've had a job since I'm 12 <laughs> so, you know, to be, to be, um, you know, 30 or 31, whatever, 30 and not have a job for the first time in your life. I was, I was shocked. You know, I just couldn't believe it. So after my, thankfully my dad made it through, but he was, remained very ill for a very long time after that. So I was um, unemployed and not really sure what to do next because I felt like I had worked for so many amazing people and it had done a lot. And I was really thinking hard about what Frank had said. So I rang him up and I said, well, you know, as, as you would have it, I am currently uh, unemployed. <laughs> He's like, well, you know, now I said, so now's the time I'm going to, you know, I'm going to start my own business because this is it. This is what's left to do. He's like, oh, good. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> and so a few months later, and I had started doing, you know, getting a name, you know, think of a name and the website and just kind of doing all that stuff, working out of my apartment. And he rang me and he said, listen, I know of an opportunity that you should follow up on. And I said, well, what is it? He said, I got a call from the Trump organization. The city wants to kick out the operator they have because they're having huge issues and they want the Trump organization to take it back on like they had done once before to rescue the rink, uh, I guess, in the early 70s. He said, you know, they asked me if I wanted to do the food service. And I said, no, it's not what I do anymore, but I can recommend someone. He said, and I'm recommending you. He said, and that's all I can do. I can only recommend you and I can put you together with them, but you have to cut the deal. It's got to be your deal. You have to live by it. 
Um, so whatever happens after this is on you. So I was like, well, okay, you know, <laughs> like this is it. So I, um, he, he gave me the contact folks to get in touch with there. And I set up a meeting with them and I walk into the Trump organization and it's literally, you know, at the time, Mr. Trump, his CFO, his COO, their purchasing manager and me, you know, <laughs> just like, literally I'm one human being and there's four of them, you know, and um, we just start talking about the ring, Walman rink, which I was familiar with because when, when Tam operated the contract 15, 20 years prior, I was, th- I was there all the time. So I was super familiar with the ebb and flow of how the Walman rink operated all the multifacets of food service as far as quick, casual, small events, large events, the, just the multitude of things that happen, carts on the roof, carts on the line, all of these different things. And so they said, you know, um, you, you know, how can we, how do we know that you can do this? And I said, listen, I, I can do it. I know what I, I, I've done it before. And uh, pre- now President Trump said at the time, he said, but listen, we can't lose a client because you're not doing because you don't do a, jo- a good job. And I said, well, that'll, you're never going to lose anybody because of us. That's for sure. He said, but you can't just do the big stuff. You have to do the small stuff. You got to do the French fries. And I, and I jokingly said, you know, from French fries to foie gras, you're not going to have a problem. The food is not going to be an issue. And operationally, it'll be strong because I know the operation. And so we, we kept talking and they were just, they were very concerned that they didn't want to have to worry about the food, the catering, the food service. They couldn't have anything negative happen with food because then it would reflect negatively on them. And they really had a heavy lift just getting the ice skating rink operational again because it had really fallen into disrepair. And I didn't even know how bad it was because we were having this conversation. I hadn't even gone there yet. And, uh, you know, so they, but they knew how much work they had ahead of them. And we only had two months to get everything together. And it was post 9-11. So it was really hard to get, it was right after 9-11. It was very hard to get anything into the park as far as power services. So we knew like they had a lot of work to do and they just didn't want to worry that they were going to engage with someone and that person was going to drop, drop the ball and they wouldn't be able to open on time. So I literally gave my word. We shook hands and we we had verbalized what our financial arrangement would be. And we everybody then immediately went to work. We all just dug in to get Walman Rink open on time for that season because they had turned over the operator over the summer. And um, and we did. And for eight years, we operated on a handshake. We literally shook hands and went to work. And and that was it. Everybody just I did what I said I was going to do. They did their part. And, and for eight years, the first eight years, it was that way. Just we, we um, you know, we had our clients were happy. The public was happy. The city was happy. You know, the place was well run and clean and they weren't having any complaints anymore. And, and people were having a good time and, and enjoying the rink. So we, we, it worked out well. But they took a risk on me for sure, because I was an unproven entity completely. All I was was a highly recommended person. But um, I was going to work hard to make sure it didn't fail. Um, I, I think of all of the, uh, if, if there was any trait that I have, that by that point, thankfully, in my life, I realized is that I can outwork almost anyone pretty much. And that was the one thing throughout my whole life, no matter what job I was doing or who my trainer was or mentor was at the time. I made sure that I would extract every possible ounce of information I could from that situation or from that person. And I was, and I'm just unrelenting when it comes to getting it done right. I'm, you know, thank God nobody's asking me to calculate math calculations for like a rocket launch or something. But when it comes to good old fashioned common sense and figuring something out, I can do that. And I knew that that was this, like, that's what it was going to take no matter what, we couldn't have a bad event. We couldn't have uh, um, a bad customer report. We couldn't have an unhappy client. We had to have lines moving fast, revenue coming in. And that was it. We're going to make it happen. And that was, that was really it. It was really just sheer will and effort to make sure nothing went wrong. Fantastic. And 
we've been lucky enough over the years. I mean, as Advertising Week is all over the world, you know, in New York, of course, we are all in on relish. But around the world, we've had to use a lot of caterers and, you know, some terrific, some okay, some not so good. I've never seen any operation with the combination of commitment and dedication to service and the creativity of what you are actually cooking, serving, and overseeing. Where does that creativity oh, at Relish you. come from? I think it, uh, I mean, I have a real love of eating and enjoying. So I think that part of it stems from that. I, I have an eye for good, for picking great kitchen talent. Um, you know, a lot of times, especially when I started Relish, people used to make this assumption that the larger the event got, there was an excuse for the food to not be great or it couldn't possibly be creative because you had to serve a thousand people or of course it's not, of course the, the meat's going to be overcooked. You're, you know, there's 500 people there. Never made sense to me why that would have to be the case. <laughs> like why, why you couldn't have great food at a catered event. And, um, you know, that was my number one driver was that if I was going to be in the off-premise catering business, the food had to be delicious. So I always had my first two chefs, four-star dining, three-star dining backgrounds. And I was actually teaching them about catering. You know, they already knew how to cook delicious food, but they had to learn how to figure out how to do it on a large scale. But I, I wanted their creativity. I wanted their, their, their kind of knowledge, but we needed to twist it so it could happen for a lot of people. And also to to change it, you know, to make everything smaller, to make everything, to, to, to make everything more of a fusion. So I think some of it, I think I have a driving vision, but you have to have the right people that share that vision to execute it. And I've been lucky to find talented, creative, fine, fine dining chefs that were ready to take up that kind of challenge. Cause it is a different, totally different animal than being in a restaurant. We have to produce so many more menus than you would ever have to produce if you were the chef of a, of a great restaurant. You know, change the menu two, three times a year. Maybe you have specials every week. We are making new food almost every day. You know, every client is practically something new and different from the other person. And that was the other thing that was important to us. We, we were the people that said yes to things that other caterers said no to. So clients would call someone and say, I want a menu that's like X, Y, and Z because I'm having a certain theme or I've got a, a certain vision in mind. And the caterers at the time would say, well, this is what we have and this is what we're doing. And you can pick something from here. And so that's basically saying no, right? I'm not going to do, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not sharing your vision, you know? So we were the ones that were saying, yes, yes, yes. You know, what would you like to have? You know, how do you envision this? How can the food act in support of what you're trying to achieve. So we found that we got a lot of really kooky, interesting challenges, you know, to, to, to work on. And we liked that, you know, I was lucky that I didn't have chefs that just wanted to make the same thing every day and really way out there things, which have been fun. But to that, it's really about saying yes, you know, because now it's different. There's a lot more caterers doing different things but at the time there weren't a lot of people saying yes and there was a weird elitist thing going on it's like you're my customer why would I say no to you <laughs> why am I giving you time like I don't understand so um that just I think in the base of that but ultimately it's gotta it's gotta look good it's gotta taste good but even if it's delicious and it gets there on time and everything is great ultimately if people People want to do business with someone they enjoy doing business with. So if you if you're not going to be pleasant and kind to deal with, I think that no matter how good the food could be, if it's not a good experience, it's just not a good experience. You know, so we we worked hard to keep kind of make all touch points something that people would say, you know what, the food was amazing, but they were so great to deal with. They went above and beyond. And that's for yeah, no, that's, listen, that's been my experience, you know, 100% with you over, you know, 20 years. So it, I, I'd love to dive into an area that I think most of us never really get to see and have no idea how it works, but the <laughs> quantity of what you do, the scale 
let's leave quality aside for a moment. But for example, the operation that you run backstage in Central Park at Global Citizens every year, I mean, you are feeding an enormous number of people for a very long period of time in a place that a few days before you get there didn't exist. Everything is created from scratch. Walk us through an event like that, of that scale, and tell us some of the things that we have no idea (laughs) happen to make something like um, that work. You know, we love, Global Citizen has been such a great, uh, they're such a great organization and they're such great clients. So we've been their caterer from the beginning of when they started hosting in the park. And we are the caterer for the VIP tent, which the first year had a, had a thousand people in it. And that seemed crowded at the time. Now we're up to 3000 people in that area. Uh, that, yeah, you're in a field, you're literally on a baseball field, right? And we have, um, the park is very strict about how long things can be set up for, how you can set things up. Uh, so, you know, we are basically getting in 48 hours before we have to serve food. And the tenting people come in and put up the tent and the, and the power people come in and run power. But that's about it. The rest is on you, you know, as, as the caterer to arrange everything else. And you don't have a lot of space. So you really have to be, you have to be organized. An event like that is like planning a military strike. You know, you have to, you have to plan for everything because you're literally cut off from everything. You know, if something, if you need something, you're at the northern tip of the park, dead smack in the middle of it. You are not close to anything, you know, and you don't have a, you know, no cabs are going by to jump in. There's no, um, you know, there's no cooking with open flame in Central Park at all. So it's not like you can barbecue anything or um, like that's just doesn't, that's not happening. <laughs> so, so, and you're not allowed to have the propane. So everything's coming off of power, off of electric, when it needs to be run. So you have to make sure you've got all your requirements correct and calculated properly. And um, for us, you have to be careful with the menu planning because you want to make sure that not only you're giving your clients the food that you know they're going to love, but you have to be able to execute it in a very small space. So the menu, starting with the menu needs to be very, very well planned. And for that particular event, we try to focus on sustainable ingredients. So we are making sure we're using grains that are drought resistant. We're making sure that we're using a lot of plant-based protein. So we have less carbon emissions. So there's a little, there's a lot of little thinking going on in that. <laughs> and without open flame, how are we keeping, what things are going to be room temperature, what things are going to be warm, how we're going to warm them, how we're going to keep them from, um, you know, from still tasting good if they're sitting out. Now, the beauty of that event is that nothing sits out as, as fast as we're making it, they're eating it because it's a long day. So even though there might be 3000 people for the VIP tent, we're seeing them all day long. So they go see somebody they like out on the show and then they come back in and they eat something and drink something and they might go back out. So they're coming back and forth constantly. And so we're in a constant state of production. We're lucky that our kitchen is you know, not that far. So we're, we're just constantly bringing new supplies in and we're making them and we're moving them out because our tent is only 20 by 30 in that for that entire event. It's kind of nuts. And we've got a whole back operation happening, but it's really, it is quite, it is quite a logistical, um, you have to deploy people. You know, we've got people in different stands, depending on who the sponsor is, that we have food service going on in other parts of the concert. And then there's, there's sponsors that have other VIP areas and they're eating a completely different menu to everyone else. So we have, uh, it's it's like a military strike. You know, you have teams of people that are that are going and being deployed in certain areas for certain things. Um, it's a super long day, but every strange every management person and captain that runs global ha, have not changed in seven years. The same thing with the upfront for Fox. The folks the, people love those events, and they're exciting, and they are crazy, and it is a lot of work, and. But it's also a huge sense of of um, of satisfaction when you're done with it, and people are so happy. You know, even at an event like that with three thousand people, where people are walking around saying, "God, the food is so good." This doesn't. This is so much better than when I go to X, Y, and Z festival, or when I was out. Um, you know, 
what is the one in Texas, South by Southwest. And they, I love when I hear people comparing our festival food, you know, to somebody else's and they're really enjoying it. And that's, you know, that that's really great. And they have no idea that there's literally nothing there 48 hours ago. And if they come back in 36 hours, there's going to be nothing where they were right now, you know, <laughs> literally, literally it's going to be gone, you know? So um, it is, that's it. It is. You really have to think about everything and the fact that you need to have everything there. There's nothing there. So every fork, every piece of linen, every table, every, every piece of decor, everything has to be planned for organized packed, brought there, unpacked and put it where it is. So you really have to be organized from the jump and, and things happen. You know, I, this is so embarrassing, but I had a driver, the, the load in, obviously we're just a small part of what gets loaded into a festival for 60,000 people in central park. So the, um, the logistics of how you're timed to load in is very important. So everybody's got their spot lined up on the drive. Our, our driver was probably fourth or fifth from going in and his, our vehicle stalls, it just stops. He can't move. And now he's got about 20 trucks with lights and sound equipment, everything behind him. And he's holding up the line and you can't get around him because those are massive trucks. It's just, they're really like a bridal path. You know, there's, there's nowhere to go. Oh my goodness. I had calls from every agency you can imagine. And our driver, um, he put, he put um, gasoline in, in a diesel truck <laughs> and it just, I'd never, I, they were ready to drag, like they were, they were, they were going to drag him out of that rented truck and kill him right there on the street. Like if people were furious and I could I mean what could I say I said I was like Wayne I don't understand it's got stickers on it that say like diesel fuel only on the gas tank like I know you drive this truck but you know for God's sakes it was literally for the next three days every no matter where I went no matter what people comment everyone was commenting about the situation on the drive thank God you know in the end, everybody got it. It was rough. I mean, but things like that happen and you can plan for everything. It's like, how, I mean, it, how could that happen? How could you stick regular fuel in a diesel truck, but somebody did it. And, and it caused a huge, like two hour delay of loading in. It was not good, but I mean, yeah, the amount of people that, that were aware of it and made, and, and made us aware of it was, and then things like that, like things like that happen in off-prem. Um, that, you know, just don't normally happen anywhere else or, you know, things get, thankfully not us, but you know, big pieces of equipment, big forklifts running around all over the place and crashes. I mean, I've, I've witnessed a few golf cart crashes and people were you know, like, think these things happen. Like, you know, uh, pe people hit things and, and uh, stuff happens. So... deal with so many high profile people, you are backstage. There must have been something really funny that happened with somebody really high profile that without telling tales out of school that you can share with us. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, no, there, I will say the, the year, so there's been a few, I mean, obviously, <laughs> Um, there's been a few, I could go, go a few ways to answer that, but there, there were, I will say, um, one of the really interesting, intense years at Global Citizen was the year that we had Michelle Obama and Hillary Clinton it was, and the, it was the same year the Pope was in town. So security in the park was just insane. I mean, I, I've never... I've never seen security in the park that way. You really couldn't take two steps. And on top of it, at Global Citizen, we had Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama. And then because it was UN week and there were some um, ambassadors speaking and there was the prime minister of India was also at um, Global Citizen. That was the, that was really intense. You know, I mean, right down to all the things that you that you see in movies about people you know sampling food before it goes to one of those folks the complete pat downs the 
the you know special pin that if you're wearing this pin, it means that you can walk as far, you, know, you can go to this gate, but if you don't, certain pins and certain ties that let that signal that you're at a certain level of um, accessibility. And I remember that, and literally every package of food, everything that we delivered got checked, went through thoroughly by Secret Service. And, um, you know, our chefs were coming in, our kitchen teams, and they, you know, I get a radio call. They're like, we need you down here. They're, they're confiscating all the knives. They have what your team has weapons. I'm like, my team has weapons. I don't understand. <laughs> we, my team has weapons. And I, I go out to the security, which is a really long walk. This is not like they're doing it behind me. And they said, you know, Claudine, your team, you know, they're saying that they have weapons on them. I'm like, I don't understand. Go out there. And it's my whole, it's like my 22 kitchen guys that cook for this event. They all have their knives with them because, you know, when you're a, a, no matter you're a chef, you're a cook, whatever it is, you always have your own knives and you bring them. Well, that was not going to fly at all that year. No, they, I think we, and I think we, I think we catered that event with like 12 knives, like 12 kitchen knives. Like they wouldn't release the knives at all to everybody. It was too many things to monitor. So stuff like that was a little weird, you know, between going through all the food and having the food checked and taste tested and, you know, for poisons and then confiscating knives. And I, it was, it was wild. I mean, truly. So I've never seen, there was, there was like an, something like an extra 300 security people on in within the tent in my area be, because of all of the kind of politicians and things like that were there. It was a little, that was a little intense to say the least. And um, I don't remember off the top of my head, but at the time I knew, you know, what Michelle Obama liked to eat, what Hillary Clinton liked to eat. And that was kind of fun to see, you know, uh, we, uh, yeah, that was kind of fun to see what everybody's diets were. I had, I had one event, uh, that was very, very well attended by Australian celebrities. And I had literally one table. I don't even know how they survive. They're like vegan, raw, no nightshade vegetables, no seeds, no nuts. And I was like, we were just glad the chef was like, he, he jokingly was, just took a head of lettuce and chopped it in four and said, there you go. Like, this is like, what are they going to eat over there? You know, like I mean, it was nuts. No nightshade vegetables, no seeds, no nuts. I mean, you're a vegan. I mean, most vegans survive on nuts and seeds. Like this is it. I it was so those kind of those are interesting little things that happen. There was nothing about this in any dietary notes about the you know no seeds, no nuts, no nightshade vegetables. Like we were prepared for vegan, vegan raw, sure, but you know normally that would involve some seeds and nuts. It's kind of Little little things like that happen all the time, <laughs> and no one knows. You know, it just you just make it happen. You are in the bucket of businesses that uh, we would call reasonably in the you know piano falling on your head like it's uh, Wiley e. Coyote, you know, in the old Bugs Bunny cartoons. Enormous operation, events driven, events large and small everything ground to a complete halt. Tell us what that's like as a business owner. Uh, particularly being in Australia so far away from it when it happened, I think it was even harder. It wasn't even, it was kind of, it was more, I felt like someone turned a light switch off on my professional life. Literally, it wasn't even like a piano that you could say it was a like, you know, a crash. It was like, a, it was so quiet. It was like the whole shut down everything just shut it wasn't even a bang it was just that like that I, mean, I had just been in New York for the tasting for the upfronts for Fox I mean I that I had just gotten back from their tasting and all of a sudden you know all of the big events start calling the upfronts global citizen clients you know corporate picnics for 2,000 people that we would normally be doing and it all starts just dun, dun, dun. and then all of your all of our daily corporate dining clients that were feeding their teams every day, five days a week, two, three meals a day. Uh, they're just in in a in a matter of 36 hours, every person was working from home. Just done. So it wasn't, it's like it's a piano, but it was also just so subtle. It was literally like a light switch. 
went off. So for the first 10 days, I think I was a little in shock. It was just, it was unbelievable. Um, and it took a little time to process what was happening. And, uh, and then we, and New York was crashing fast. And we are, are there was oh, so many people sick and you feel almost bad that you're worried about your business when there are people literally dying, you know, and hooked up to ventilators. But on the same note, at the time I had 220 plus employees that I was their life support. Relish was their, is their life support. So I was feeling really guilty on so many levels, bad for feeling worried and concerned about my business because I have people that have been with me for ages that are, that rely on relish, but you know, we're all healthy. So I, I mean, I was, you're really torn. And then being so far away in Melbourne, I felt an extra level of guilt because I wasn't there, you know, in the trenches with my team as they were going through this. And at the time, things in Australia were relatively okay, but we were locked down, but it wasn't, we didn't have the death toll and the sickness. So it was really, uh, it was really just a weird mix of guilt all around and, um, but still concerned about, about relish because I did have so many people that relied on us for, for their livelihoods and their own families. So it was really took some time to, um, to figure out what to do. We did have to let some people go, but we did, it wasn't massive at the time. We were shifting people around. I had a property uh, in, in Washington, D.C. at the time that we were there for one of our large clients. Did have to shut down that whole operation. So that was hard. Um, but then it was like, okay, what can we do? And we immediately started bidding on emergency food service contracts for the city, for hospitals, we were lucky enough to secure a contract with New York Health and Hospital. They were housing a lot of doctors and medical staff from outside of the city that had come in to help New York. So we were, we immediately went into emergency mode. So we're really good at that, right? Feeding thousands of people, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a fast, efficient way. And we, we did that for the first few months, but then Thankfully, New York got better. You know, people weren't getting as sick. The hospitals weren't as overstressed. The, the ship sailed away. The extra hospitals got broken down. I don't even know if they really even got used, but New York was finally able to sustain itself with the healthcare system we had in place. So all of those extra people left. And so with that was kind of the end of our, of that push of business. So for us, it really started hitting home in July and August, just how devastated our industry was. And the fact that I really didn't have any clients anymore. <laughs> like, we didn't have, we literally didn't have any clients. There was nobody left. There's no big events. No events could happen at the, at the time. And even if they could happen, nobody was comfortable hosting anything. And because we were never a restaurant, we didn't, there was never a takeout component to what we did um, you know, we were, we were always been very large feeder driven. So we had to start pivoting, thinking about ourselves in a whole new way, connecting with clients in a, in a much more smaller way, uh, because that, and that's not normally our client base. So we were, we have to go out and think about, okay, how can we connect with people that really aren't familiar with us? You know, the general person wouldn't know who Relish is because unless they attended one of our events, it's not like they've walked by our cafe or they ordered from us on Grubhub or any of those things. We're, we're, we were never in that world. So we are, we've been shifting to, to appeal to more of a retail market. We have been programming different meal kits um, connecting with corporate clients in the sense that we've been making a lot of custom gifts and custom culinary gifts and um, meal boxes, grill boxes that clients have been sending out to their clients to say maybe it was a big outing or a company picnic that they might have invited guests to. Well, they're sending them a picnic tote instead. Uh, we, we've been working on even clients that want to send Thanksgiving meals to their customers or their employees. We've been hosting a lot of custom gifting. We had a technology company. We did a, a 1990s themed gift that was kind of fun with hot, that we made homemade hot pockets and um, kind of other fun things for that. So we've been doing a lot of that custom again, 
strange things that nobody wants to do, but will do them. It's like, not like you can Google Harry and David and get, you know, a custom 1990s gift. So we have, once again are going back to trying to make things special because we're, we're not a retail operation. So we're trying to create experiences that can be mailed or delivered by hand that, uh, that, that clients would be interested in, in sending to their clients. Because now thing, I feel like things we're starting to see a bit more of that where people are starting to program meetings through Zoom, but they're sending breakfast to everybody attending, things like that. It's definitely not, it's not at all like, a, it could never, it does not replace what we were doing before, but it certainly keeps us in touch with clients and with our people. And I think that like all things in New York, you can only keep New York down for so long, no matter what's happening, things will come back because it's, you, you can only stay away from so long. I mean, remote, everything is great. Remote learning, remote working. But I, I can't imagine that January is going to roll around and the energy and the, and the kind of attention span is going to still be there to be so remote. And we are trying to do everything we can to stay connected with clients in between them, still creating great experiences in an interesting way, really relying heavily on, on uh, technology to get our brand out there more, to make it easier to order, to make it easier to find us, um, and doing a lot of back-end system retweaking. But ultimately, we're, our, we, want to, we want to make sure that when, when, when everybody's ready to come back to work, we're there. And when they're ready to start entertaining, we're there. And we're doing everything we can now to dot all our I's and cross all our T's and think of ourselves, what else can we be doing that will appeal to our clients that they want to pass on to their clients or their employees? And thinking of that now so that when, when January rolls around and people start trickling in, we will be there to, to be ready for them and give, start engaging with them to give them ideas on how they can be different than how things can be different than they were before. Cause everything is going to be different. You know, it's not going to be the same. I knew this would be fun and it sure was. I want to congratulate you. This is now the longest interview in about 80 that we've done. <laughs> great <Grapevine. laughs> That's a great story. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content, just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.